Welcome to Wines We Drink, a podcast for wine lovers and learners. I'm Charlotte Norsworthy, and together with my counterpart, Keith Herndon, we'll be exploring a new wine each week. Keith is a lover of wine, and I am a learner of wine. We hope you'll learn and sip along with us, too. Welcome back, everyone, to Wines We Drink, the podcast where each episode is an exploration of a wine varietal that features me, I'm Charlotte Norsworthy, and my co-host, Keith Herndon, drinking an exceptional example. Keith, it's great to be with you for today's show. Yeah, thanks, Charlotte. It's uh, so much fun to be with you as well, and I just love talking about wine with you. And tasting them. And and absolutely drinking them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and in this episode, our fourth episode, we introduce our first white wine as we explore and taste a Chardonnay. For those of you just now catching up with Wines We Drink, please listen to our previous episodes where we drink wonderful examples of Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir. But today, it's on to the white category. Keith, why are we starting with Chardonnay? Well, this varietal is a staple of many of the old world's classic regions, uh, but especially France's Burgundy. Um, A Chablis, for example, is 100% Chardonnay. And that's just a classic example of a Chardonnay wine that we tend to think of. When we think of Chardonnay, we think of a French Chablis, right? Uh, But this grape is used to make white wines in many different ways and, and in a wide range of styles, You'll find crisp and citrusy uh, to those that have a heavy oaky uh, flavor from the barreling, from the aging in barrels. Um, you'll find some that finish with zest, and you'll have others that finish with uh, maybe a soft vanilla. Right? Wow. So it seems like Chardonnay is like the chameleon of the wine world. Is that I, right? I think that's a great way to put it. Um, my, my mentor, uh, my wine mentor, Dr. Clinton Lee of the Asia Pacific Wine and Spirit Institute, where I've done some of my studying, um, he has described Chardonnay as the equivalent of vanilla ice cream because of its versatility. And it's certainly open to the skill of the winemaker that can take the Chardonnay grape and, and really craft whatever style on top of that grape that the winemaker wants to express. And I think that's why it's so exciting to have a really good example today. For those wine novices among us like me, that seems to make choosing Chardonnay a hit or miss proposition. So how do we know what to choose? Well, it's it's very true that one Chardonnay can be very different from another Chardonnay, okay? But I don't think that should frighten anyone away from the varietal because I like to think that we can use that diversity to encourage more wine exploration. We've talked about that being the concept behind doing this uh, podcast, you know? Uh, be willing to explore. So the more variety of Chardonnays you sample, uh, the more you're going to be able to understand their differences, those underlying nuances, the very uh, uh, discrepancy, if you will, of the flavor profile from one to the to the other. Um, so that could be a classic Chablis, a crisp, unoaked example from Australia, right? Or, or one of the many, many different uh, styles and expressions you're going to find uh, in the California Chardonnays. Well, let's get into it. The wine we're drinking today, what have you selected for us? Well, as you know, uh, many of the wines I've selected for us to share on, on this podcast come from places that I visited. Not all, but, but most. And, uh, and this one is, uh, is no exception to the visit category, <laughs> right? Uh, we're drinking a Chardonnay today from Far Niente 
which produces wines as special and vibrant as the beautiful grounds that surround its winery. Uh, so this is in, uh, you know, California's Napa Valley, which is, uh, I would think, is kind of the U.S.'s um, wine garden, if you will. <laughs> you know, maybe the people next door in Sonoma would, would argue with that. But, uh, you know, I love, I, I love the Napa uh, wineries. And when you pass through the gates of Farniente, you're entering 13 acres that are a botanical garden wonderland, right? And uh, so, so I'm very partial uh, to that winery and to the thousands of southern azaleas covering the ground, you know, uh, being a southerner and going out wow. to California and seeing that uh, that setting, it's it's kind of like the masters, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, with all those uh, azaleas around there. So it's really a setting that clears the mind and puts you in the mood to relax and enjoy their wines. Well, I'm sold. I wish we could be there. <laughs> <laughs> and I even see behind you a Farniente uh, uh, cutting board. So I'm definitely being transported here. Uh, and it sounds like a magical place. So which one of their potions are we going to drink today? <laughs> That's a great, uh, great expression there. Um, we're opening a bottle of the 2017 vintage from Farniente's uh, Napa Valley Estate. Uh, this vintage is the most popular of the recent Farniente Chardonnays among the Vivino app users. And, and yes, once again, the users of this tool have rated this wine among the top 1% of wines in the world. I like to think of it as a great window into this varietal. It's considered to be an iconic California Chardonnay. Wow. And as I've mentioned before, and if you've listened to the previous episodes, we've been spoiled so far with all top 1% wines. And so I'm very excited for this one. Let's go ahead and pour a couple and get started. Okay. Right off the bat, as you're going to start this pour here, I'm noticing that uh, unlike our two previous reds, you did not decant this wine before you've poured it. Can you explain a little bit as to why? Yeah, I usually decant an aged uh, red wine, but, um, you know, I don't usually with white wines. And, and sometimes that's just really a, uh, a personal preference, <laughs> you know, okay. in some ways. Uh, I think some experts will say that white wines, uh, particularly ones that have been aged, um, uh, will benefit from being decanted. But I like to say that I haven't really found white wines to be wound as tight mm. <laughs> as a as a as a, a as an aged red wine and so I don't think they need to as much unwinding okay you know, that's the way I would describe okay. it okay I'm learning as we go and I'm gonna <laughs> pick up on that hopefully interesting okay great so just take a look at the color of the wine and 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 how would you describe that yeah it's a beautiful light golden color um very translucent um, and definitely not a deep gold. It's more of a yellow gold, uh, but yeah, very clear and very faint. Okay. So, so just swirl that a little bit and put it up to your nose and, and, uh, kind of see, you know, what, uh, what aromas are you might be picking up from mm -hmm. there? It smells very sharp. Um, it sort of slices through my nostrils, if you will. Very clean. But it's also kind of woodsy. I don't know what a better word would be for that. 
as of now uh, in my wine vocabulary, my novice wine vocabulary. But um, yeah, I, I am getting a little bit of nature. Um, maybe I'm just thinking botanical gardens here, but it is an also uh, a, a nice sharp scent too. Okay. Well, um, go ahead and take that first sip and then I'll comment on some of the things that you picked up in the, in the, in the aromas. Mm. Wow. That's delicious. Very, very easy, uh, going down the throat, another bright, uh, going off of what I was smelling. It's a very bright taste. Um, maybe a little acidic if I had to describe it. Um, if, you know, I'm thinking about fruits, it's definitely more on the acidic side. Uh, perhaps there's some citrus or something going on there. Maybe that's just from the style of wine. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, going back to that that nature, I wouldn't say floral. I would say, yeah, I guess woodsy um, would be the way, you know, you described at the beginning uh, the barrels and, and uh, the wine aging and soaking up some of that. Uh, maybe that's what's happening here. I could be making that up. No, you're picking up on okay. all of the right things. You know, uh, back to your aromas. I mean, um, when you look at the tasting notes, they refer to a sweet citrus, mm. right? And and you were talking about that. And then when you get into the into the actual some of the flavors, you know, back in the in like the, the middle of your palate, you were picking up on that lemon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that, it. That sharpness that you were describing there. That that's kind of the lemon that's that's coming out. And, and you mentioned this idea of kind of this earthy kind of thing, like that, that concept. Yeah. Well, the, the, the winemaker referred to um, the uh, uh, notes of flint. Flint. Okay. <laughs> There's the woods. There, yeah. So, you know, so, so I thought that that was kind of an interesting, you, yeah. you, you picked up on that subtlety there. Now, you know, and as a novice and still learning some wine words, you might not have chosen the word flint. No, right? that wouldn't have come to right? mind. But then you also notice the idea of some of the wood. Yeah. Right. And, and this was aged in oak, but not very long. Okay. It was only 10 months in oak. And okay. it, that's and that's not a long time. That's not a long time. Okay. Right. It's almost like they let the oak kiss the wine. Okay. What would be considered a longer time? Frame? Oh, much. You know, three to three to five years or, okay. or more. Right? Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you know, some there's some there could be some barrel aging that takes uh, takes a while, but uh, but in this in this particular case, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but mm-hmm. um, uh, but it did uh, the the uh, the winemaker's tasting notes refer to a sweetly toasted oak. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Sweetly toasted. Right. Now, it was interesting. You described some kind of botanical, but you said not floral. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the winemaker does say that you're going to find some white blossom floral oh, wow. notes in there. Okay. okay? Yeah. Right? Maybe yeah. I, maybe it's it's fainter. I, I do, I'm just remembering the... Um, the florals from our reds, you know, in the earlier episodes, and when that was my reference, you know, those were much more at the at the top of my tongue, you know, uh, than these white blossoms maybe coming through. <laughs> so, you know, the the when I drink this wine, um, and the thing that I like about it, and not everybody has the same palate, not everybody picks up the same kind of flavors and notes. So there's, it's not like a right or wrong answer for our listeners out there who are just getting into this understanding of, you know, tasting and drinking wine and trying to describe it. But for me, uh, I get a strong sense of melon flavor from this wine. Interesting. 
right? I smell the melon in there, and then um, and, and to me, it's kind of a it's kind of a a conflict almost on the palate between a honeydew melon and the lemon, and they're having a little bit of a tug of war mm-hmm. on my tongue, right? Interesting, interesting. <laughs> But both are very bright flavors, you know, honeydew and lemon. Yes, uh, and absolutely. I think overall, this is very bright and summery. It reminds me of something that you would drink. Well, maybe it's also, you know, I'd love to ask you about maybe temperature here. <laughs> uh, it's chilled. Oh, yes. You, and would, you would definitely serve a Chardonnay chilled. Well, and that, I think, makes r- reminds me more of summer. It's a nice, cool beverage uh, and one that has these sort of bright, easy uh, lemon and melon Right. Well, I like the way that the the uh, the winemaker uh, uh, finished off the uh, the tasting notes, um, the, the the wine notes, the official wine notes from Farniente say the finish is long and structured, with citrus rind, and mouth watering, acid. Interesting. <laughs> and so what you a and, and so you but you noticed that acidity yeah. and you commented on the acidity. Yeah. But I like the way the winemaker described it as mouth watering because it is. It, it is. really sets you up and mm-hmm. you just want to keep drinking it. Yeah. Right? I mean it, it it definitely leaves you wanting more and uh you know to not be <laughs> uh maybe gross here but it does bring more saliva to the palate. It it does sort of make your mouth water in the best of ways. And yeah, it brings you right back into another sip for that reason. Yes, I, I just, I think that this is a, um, uh, a really good, um, uh, I kind of, I kind of an, you know, almost an iconic version of, of a Chardonnay from Napa that is allowing the fruit to come out and allowing the fruit to be expressed without so overpowering from being in an oat barrel for too long. So so sometimes with Chardonnays, you can get them overly oaked. Some people prefer that style when the Chardonnay has aged for a relatively lengthy period, but you don't get that here. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the winemaker's tasting notes refer only to a sweetly toasted oak, and I think that contributes to this wine's fantastic finish right? Mm-hmm. And it's where we get that real, as, as the notes refer to, that mouth-watering acid, right? Uh, but I really believe that this is an example where they let the zesty citrus effect come through. Um, and I also want to add that, that one of the things that I think makes this wine approachable is its alcohol by volume of 14.3% makes it a bold wine, but it is not overpowering, right? And I think that that you know, lets the lemon citrus really shine. And, and to me, that's simply a delicious Chardonnay. Oh, it's absolutely wonderfully refreshing, easy, easy to drink. It definitely doesn't feel overpowering. It doesn't feel too much. It's very balanced. It feels just right. So, you know, I, I want to add that, you know, a lot of the characteristics of this wine are inherent in the styles of wine that you get from Farniente as a winery, <clears throat> but also the location of the vineyards uh, that they used to, for the grapes to produce this Chardonnay. They're, they're located in Coombsville, which is a part of the Napa that's a little bit of a cooler growing region. And, and, and there's hills east of Napa, which protect those vineyards from, from the winds. And, and uh, so when you're talking about this wine and you understand where it, 
where the grapes came from and you understand that it's kind of part of the Farniente style of wines, then, then you can really appreciate it. But I think we also have to really give a shout out to Nicole Marchese, uh, who's the winemaker of this wine. Um, she's a great example of the emerging women winemakers who are just making some awesome wines and breaking down the barriers in what has been a field long dominated by men. Well, I love this wine that much more. This just gave me so many more bonus points. I love the fact that uh, there are women sort of breaking into this space that, like you said, is is primarily male-dominated. Uh, and it just brings, I think, maybe an interesting, a refreshing perspective. We describe the wine as refreshing. And, you know, I, I think that that also may describe uh, Nicole. Um, and I think that that's really, really incredible. Um, And so once again, we've come to the time in our wine drinking where we tell our listeners what to expect in terms of cost. We're talking about an iconic Napa Valley Chardonnay, the top 1% that's been ranked by the the Vino app as the top 1% in the world, that is. Uh, So this has got to be pretty expensive, right? Well, I'm going to say it's not cheap, okay? But it's not an out-of-reach expensive wine, right? Again, I, I think this is going to fall into that pricing range that reflects a really excellent value. Uh, this 2017 is now listed on the uh, Farniente website as part of its cave collection. And it's listed on the website for, for about $80, right? You, you may be able to find it out in the supply chain anywhere from $65 to $85. So, you know, not inexpensive, but not break the bank expensive. Maybe more of a special occasion wine for many of us. I I think, and that would be a very special occasion, right? Um, This wine pairs so well with so many types of of dishes, you know, so it would be a great accompaniment at a variety of functions, right? It goes really well with poultry, um, you know, um, it's it's a it's a it's a wine that really likes to be friends with <laughs> with some rich fish like a salmon or a tuna, and uh, this one would hold up I think really nicely paired with uh, uh, with pork and and a wide range of vegetarian dishes. So I think this particular Farniente is incredibly versatile for matching with all kinds of food. Well, that's great to have a wine that works with such a range of foods. You know, I mentioned in the last few episodes how, again, maybe a little intimidating it feels to think about how a wine might pair with something. So it's good to know that you've got the vanilla ice cream of wines here to back you up. It's going to go with any toppings, right? (laughs) So uh, we're going to step away for a moment. We'll be back shortly to wrap up this episode for our wine word feature. This week's word is oak. And Keith will give us a take on why oak is an important wine word. We'll be right back. So we've talked in this episode about some of the oaky notes of the wine we drank today. So where does that come from and why do we care about oak in terms of wine? Well, in my understanding of wine history, okay, we can largely thank the Romans for the use of oak barrels in, in, in wine. So as the Roman Empire kept expanding, they were always looking for better ways to ship products to their, you know, their far-flung outposts. And over time, they started using wooden barrels. I think they got that idea from some of the other 
people that they had conquered, right? And, and they started using these wooden barrels to transport wine, and, and oak barrels proved to be a really reliable vessel because they were watertight, right? But it was also over time that as they started consuming these wines that had been transported in these um, uh, you know, oak barrels, that they began to understand that the oak was imparting flavors and structure and complexity to the, to the wines. And we still recognize those benefits today. So, you know, so I think that, you know, most of the oak aging today for both reds and whites occur in barrels that are made of oak from either French or American origin, right? Now, if you're really into wood, <laughs> right, our, among our listeners out there, if you're really into wood, you can dig deeper in how these woods interact differently with the wine. Uh, there are some winemakers that prefer only French and some winemakers that prefer barrels only from American oak. There are some that will blend, uh, you know, the two, uh, right? But, but generally, winemakers choose the type of oak or blend of oak based on the flavors they want to impart in that final product. So, you know, so this is not etched in stone, right? But, um, but generally, uh, French oak is described as, you know, imparting a lot of earthy characteristics and flavors like chocolate or coffee or savory spices, while American oak flavors are often described as coconut, vanilla, and sweeter spices, right? So, uh, let me give a shout out to the Kendall Jackson website for helping me formulate that type of <laughs> you know uh, definition, if you will, for for some of these. But you can really see how oak plays out in the example of the wine that we drank today. It was not overly oaky, right? And so the Fardinenti Chardonnay that we drank, the 2017 vintage, was aged in oak, but only 100% French oak. And only for 10 months. So it was almost like the oak was just kissing the wine. And that's why we don't have this, you know, overpowering oakiness, right? In, uh, in, in whatever flavors that you would ascribe to it. But, uh, but, we, but we use oak as part of the winemaking process now to give it some of that structure. Uh, we talked last episode about tannins or one of the episodes about tannins. And oak has its own tannins. And so some of those tannins get placed into the wine and that adds to the structure and the complexity of it. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you for that explanation. It seems like we have uh, a lot to thank for the Romans. Um, <laughs> the history part of that really speaks to the long traditions associated with wine and how the wines we drink today are influenced by the history that preceded us. Exactly. You know, I, I think that one of the reasons that I got really interested in wine was part of that history. There's such a tradition that goes into the winemaking process, but there's also winemakers out there that challenge those traditions and, and create really innovative um, uh, wines as, as well. So it's, this, it's these nuances that you learn to discover you know, by tasting and exploring lots and lots of different wines. Great. Well, that will wrap up this episode. Another great example of the wines we drink. Thanks, Keith, and thanks to all of our listeners. Yes, thanks, Charlotte. Thanks for listening to Wines We Drink. Listen to our other episodes anywhere you get your podcasts. 
Be sure to subscribe so you'll be the first to listen to future episodes and follow us on Twitter at Wines We Drink and Instagram at The Wines We Drink. Cheers.